become a tradition uh, pretty much in, across the country. And depending on which medical school you go to, uh, kind of determines when you participate in this white coat ceremony. There are some uh, that kind of do it uh, earlier in the, your educational process, and there are some uh, that will do it kind of when you leave the classroom and you start actually doing the hands-on uh, practicing of medicine. There's others that will wait until the very end. Once you've completed everything, your your classroom part, your clinical trials, your clinical part, and then at the very end when you're graduating, they'll do this white coat ceremony. But regardless of when you participate in it, the, the process and the purpose of it is the same, right? And the process is just what you saw, that they call a name, that person walks across the stage of the platform, and then a, a professor or another doctor puts that white coat on them, um, and then they walk off the stage, right? And the purpose is that it's to mark this transition, to, that, that you once were a student, but now you're different, now you're a doctor. You once were sitting in a classroom, and all your education was going on in a classroom, but now you're taking that out. You're going and you're transitioned to where you're treating patients. They said once you were a layperson, but now you're a member of the healthcare profession. And now you're part of this elite group and you're set apart by this white coat. And people are going to know that you made this transition. You went through this transition because they see this white coat. And if you've been in the doctor's office, you've been to the hospital, you know that when the guys and ladies in the white coats walk in, it gets pretty serious, right? You know those are the folks that have gone through this transition. They, they are different than the other folks walking in and around the hospital. And so they're part of this elite group, and you know it because of what they put on, the dress that they have. And so their status is based on, you can see their status just simply on what they wear. This white coat now represents who they are and what they do, and it sets them apart and marks them as different as what they were before. And so I showed you that video because it's a beautiful illustration of what Paul is trying to show us and teach us in Colossians chapter 3. In Colossians chapter 3, which is where we're going to be this morning, uh, he's not talking about a white coat, but he does kind of give us this challenge of putting on a new self and basically clothing ourselves with an attitude and actions that are different than we were before. Attitudes and actions that will let other people around us know just by looking at us, just by interacting with us, that something is different about us as followers of Christ. And so as we read through this text, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3, uh, starting in verse 5, and then read through verse 14. I'm honestly praying that today is kind of a white coat ceremony for you. That today will be a day of transition for all of us either sitting in here or watching online. That today will be a day that we, we take off stuff from this past year and we get rid of that stuff. And we put into our new year something very different. We put on something that marks us as different. Maybe we see something that we want to strive for in the year 2023 as we draw closer to Christ. So if you've got your Bibles, Colossians chapter 3, we'll start in verse 5, read through verse 14. Verse 5 says, Therefore, put to death what belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, God's wrath comes on the disobedient. And you once walked in these things while you were living in them. But now you must also put away all the following, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, 
And you're being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your Creator. Verse 11. In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. Verse 12. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so that you may also forgive. Finally, verse 14, above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you for the difference that you have made in our life. And so, God, I pray that as we work through this text, God, I pray that as we walk through this passage together, God, that we are challenged to seek this transition. And God, many of us have already kind of made this transition. We've already become a part of your body and we've already become who you are are making us into be, God. But I pray that we will continue to pursue these things. God, I pray that we will continue to wrap ourselves in these characteristics of you, Father. God, not because of what we are able to do, not because of our abilities, but because of what you have done in us and for us and through us, Father. And so, God, I pray this morning that you speak. And God, I pray that, honestly, you challenge us to walk closer to you. God, I pray that as we read through this text and work through this text, God, we see this not just today, but, God, through the rest of this new year, God. Let us be clothed in your garments. God, let us put on this new self and live in a way that the rest of the world knows that we are marked and we are different because of what you have done in and for us, Father. And so, God, I pray that you speak. God, I pray that some of us read this text and we honestly become uncomfortable because we know there are things in our life that should not be there. God, I pray that some of us read this text and we are comforted knowing this is what we're striving for. These are the goals that we've set, not just for today, not just for this year, but for the rest of our life. And so, God, we invite you to speak to our hearts and to our souls. And God, I pray that in your speaking, God, we are open to you, to your correction and to your comfort. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This past week, I was just curious about some of the New Year's traditions that people have. And uh, many of you probably have New Year's traditions. Some of you don't, and some of you probably do. And uh, there's the typical ones that we all kind of think of, of making New Year's resolutions. And that's probably the article I was reading that says that's probably the oldest New Year's tradition is making resolutions. And they said that goes back all the way to the time of the Babylonians, so about 4,000 years, about three or 4,000 years ago, uh, people started making these resolutions. resolutions and uh, their resolutions were a little different than ours like we make resolutions to stop smoking or to to lose weight their resolutions were basically two things one I owe you money and I promise I'm going to pay it back to you or two you let me borrow something and I promise I'm going to get it back to you all right those are probably good resolutions to make if you're going to make a resolution start with those two things of if you owe somebody something get it back to them, right? So uh, they started this idea of making these resolutions. They did it every single year. Some of you, uh, your traditions are are watching the ball drop. Some of you made it up to midnight last night, and you were excited, and you were watching TV, and you just counted down with the, the crowd. And I've heard some stories about people who were almost there. You made it until like 11.50 or 11.55, and then you were done, right? I'll let you in on a little secret. For you guys that have younger kids... This is maybe cover your kids' ears for just a moment. Next year, here's an idea for you. There are fake countdowns out there. I don't know if you know this or not. 
But you can convince a younger kid that 8.30 is really midnight if you put on a fake countdown and you get really excited at 8.30. And then everybody goes to bed at 9 and everybody wins. All right? Maybe I should have told you that last week um, and we could have worked that out. But next year, just know, hit me up. I'll send you an idea, all right? And I'll show you where to find those things. But that watching the ball drop or watching something drop, that's a tradition that's been going on uh, really since 1907. For some of you, you've got a tradition of eating certain foods, right? And today is New Year's, and if you're like me growing up, there was always certain staples that were on the table. There was pork, there's black-eyed peas, and there's some form of greens. You use collard greens or, or lettuce or something that's green that I'm probably not going to eat. And so I'm going to be honest with you, I probably could be a whole lot richer if I'd ate all that stuff growing up. At least that's what they told me. But I didn't eat any of that stuff. So I found an alternative. And the alternative is there are other countries that have staples as well. All right? They replace all of that pork and, and stuff like that. And they say if you just eat round foods. Right, round foods like coins, right? Like that symbolize a coin. Right? Now they gave examples like grapes and, and grapefruits and oranges, and none of that sounded very appetizing to me either. But my thought is pizza is a round food, right? Pepperoni is a round food. So today that's gonna be my new tradition. I'm gonna start eating pizza and pepperoni on New Year's and, and I'm gonna see if that works the same as well. All right. Uh, there's that's right. Yeah, if you scoop it right, I didn't I'm going to add that to my list. Hold on. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Ice cream can be perfectly round. Yeah. Uh, there's another tradition. And I don't know that this one I would have got beat for as a kid, but I read this tradition that at midnight or right before midnight, you need to open up all the windows and doors of your house. Right. And the idea is that the new year can come into the front door. And as it comes in, it pushes the old year out the back door. Right. Now, if that's your tradition, be thankful it happened this week instead of last week, all right? Because it was a little more tolerable this week than last week. And so the new year coming in, pushing the old year out, it was getting rid of this old thing. And, uh, and so maybe weather doesn't permit you to leave your windows and doors open, or maybe you just don't like that tradition. Like I said, I would have gotten in trouble for that as a, as a kid. But I did find one tradition uh, in Ecuador that I found really fascinating, and there's a tradition in Ecuador that what they do is they burn the old year. All right? And the way they do this is they, it really started, it's got a long history. It started during a, an epidemic of a yellow fever, or I think yellow fever. Um, it started with that, and so it's kind of changed. But what they do is they take um, kind of paper mache dummies. Like you create a, a paper mache dummy of either a political person or a cartoon character or just something that represents things that you got tired of last year, okay? So if you're, again, if you're a parent, think of the worst song that your kid got stuck in your head and now next year make a paper mache of that character, okay? Because then you fill that paper mache character with sawdust and at midnight you take that paper mache out of your house, whatever that character is, you take that out of your house and you take it in the middle of the street and you light that thing on fire, right? And it's symbolic of you burning up the old year, getting rid of all the stuff that you didn't like about last year. Now they also have this extra tradition, if you're really springy and you're really excited, you get to jump over whatever you're burning 12 times, once for each month, okay? Now I don't recommend that. Because there was a caution, like, you know, you read these warning signs, like, hey, if you try this, you may end up the burning thing. And so I wouldn't recommend the jumping over it. But uh, they, they burn these things up, and then they, they kind of get rid of all of the old stuff. They're doing away with the things that are wrong. They're doing away with the things they don't like from the past year. And I'll be honest with you, that's probably not a tradition 
that I'm going to take up. But I love it because it gives this beautiful image of what Paul is telling us about what we should be doing as Christians and what we could look like uh, and should do with kind of this new year in Colossians chapter 3. And really, he starts in verse 5, and he gives us these two lists. Early in this passage, he gives us two lists of stuff that we honestly should, should pack up, we should make up and whatever, and then drag it out into our street, and we should get rid of it. We should burn this. And so I want you to look with me uh, at the first of these two lists in verse 5. The, the second list is verses 8 and 9. But verse 5, he says, Therefore, put to death... What belongs to your worldly nature, sexual immorality, impurities, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. And we won't go through all of those in detail, but I will share with you, he puts some very strong language in here. He says, put these things to death. And one author sums it up this way. He says that we should wipe these things out. We should completely exterminate the old way of life is what he's telling us. Right? Now, I'll share a secret with you that several years ago, my wife and I and our kids, we had a little bit of an ant problem at our house. Right? We, we walked into the kitchen and, and we, had some, we had a donut on the kitchen that stayed there on the table, on the counter overnight. And we walked in the next morning and our donut was covered with ants. And we decided at that moment... We didn't like ants, all right? So we did what we thought was the reasonable thing. We called an exterminator, all right? And he came and he said, all right, yeah, we're going to take care of these ants. This is not going to be a problem, not a problem at all, all right? And if you understand the job of an exterminator is in the name. He is to exterminate the ants. He is to put them to death, to get rid of them, right? And we paid him every month to come and either do these treatments or then he came every so often to do these treatments. And our goal was just that. To get rid of these ants. Right? We didn't want less ants. Okay, We didn't want fewer ants. We didn't want smaller ants. And we didn't want lame ants that like walked around on three legs instead of four. Or I guess five legs instead of six. Okay, That's not what we wanted. We wanted no ants. Like We didn't want ants in the house. We didn't want ants in the yard. We didn't want ants anywhere. That's the purpose of hiring an exterminator, is to completely eradicate these things. So they're not anywhere around. And so if I happen to leave a donut on the bar, it's still there for me the next morning. Okay? We wanted to get rid of this. And that's what Paul is telling us. This is what you should do with this list that he gives us in verse 5. Can I be honest with you? The problem is that many of us don't take it to that extreme. We'll settle for less of verse 5. We won't settle for exterminating. We don't want to go to the extreme. That's just too harsh. That's too much. It takes too much effort to put these things to death. And so we'll settle for just a little bit less of them. And some of us will look at this new year and we're like, yeah, those things are bad. We need to get rid of those. But maybe if I just do them once a week instead of twice a week. Maybe if I just indulge in these things once a month and we'll settle for less than or we'll settle for these things that, that we let kind of live in the corners of our lives where nobody else is. And, and our tendency when we let them reside there is to come back to them over and over and over again. And that's the reason Paul says, hey, don't let these things be around. Don't let them limp around in the corner. Don't shove them in the closet like you do with all the other stuff when people are coming over for Christmas and New Year's. Completely wipe this stuff out. Because if it's shoved in a closet, eventually it's coming back. If you let it lie around in the corners of your house and your life, eventually it's coming back. And so what Paul is telling you, he gives this very strong language to put these things to death. Eradicate them completely. Don't let any part of them be part of who you are. You once 
were these things. You once did these things, but now that time is over. And as we read on that list in verse 5, it's, it's kind of quick to say in verse 5, yeah, those things are bad. Like, yeah, those are, those are things that we should all kind of shame. We should all look and be like, man, that's terrible. We don't want any part of that. We, we should stay away from those things. And then he gives us this second list. And the second list starts in verse 8 and then continues on in verse 9. And the second list, honestly, is one that hits a little closer to home. Because there's many of us that can sit here and we can read verse 5 and we're like, yeah, I'm good on that list. But then we read verses 8 and 9. We find ourselves maybe a little closer to verses 8 and 9. Verse 8 says, but you, or excuse me, but not, but now you must also put away the following. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and filthy language from your mouth. And continues on in verse 9. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old self with its practices. You see, he's telling you that these things are no longer part of who you are. You once were these things. You once lied and didn't feel guilty about it. You once let your anger burst forth and it wasn't a problem for you. You didn't constrain it. You didn't hold it back. You just let it fly. You once were full of wrath. You once were malice and slanders, which means that you stepped on other people to get what you wanted. And your, your language was... Some of you are sailors, but we'll just use that analogy. Your language is just that as a sailor. It didn't matter if you hit your thumb or it didn't matter if you dropped something just flew out of your mouth. And he's saying, this shouldn't be what people know you as anymore. This should not be what characterizes you anymore. You have put this stuff off, and it shouldn't be part of your garment. It shouldn't be part of your reputation. This should not be what people know you or know about you anymore. And so as we read those lists, honestly, it would be easier if Paul just said, hey, listen, you're doing some things that are wrong. You need to stop doing them. It'd be easier, be less text, it'd be less things for him to write. But N.T. Wright, a great theologian, he points out, he says, there is an importance in listing and naming these sins. And N.T. Wright says that it is far easier to drift into a sin which one does not know by name than consciously to choose one whose very title should be repugnant to every Christian. What he's telling us is that he gives us these names because he wants to be honest about where we're at. He gives us the names of these things because if we just said we want to sin less in 2023, that's a very broad category. And he says, listen, you need to be specific about the sins that you are in. You need to be specific about what's going on in your life. You need to start. If you're going to put these things away, if you're going to put them to death, then you have to start by naming them. You have to be honest that this is where I'm at, and this is what I'm doing, and this is what I'm living in. And we need to be honest. We need to call these things out by name so that we can get rid of them. We can get them out of our lives. And we need to start treating them in a way that they are terrible. You see, we've glossed over them. We've just said, hey, there's sins in my life. I'm not perfect. I'm not a perfect person. There's just these sins that I need to get rid of. And Paul says, no, you need to be specific. If you're wanting to be less of a sinner, if you want to be less sinful, then call them by what they are. Call them by the names that they are. Go ahead and be honest with yourself and say, hey, you told a lie, which makes you a liar. You are malice. You are slandering someone else. That You are greedy. You put something in the place of God. You are an idolater. You have put an idol up for yourself. That's what greed and, and those things are. And so, listen, it's not sufficient to, for us to say, I just want to sin less in this new year. And that's a good goal, but we need to be specific about it. What is it that you want to do less of? 
Not only what do you want to do less of, what do you need to drag out into the street and what do you need to burn so that it's not part of your life anymore? There's a wonderful Christian movie. Uh, I think I just lost the name of it. But the guy has a problem, and one of his problems would fall into verse 5, where he has an addiction to things that he sees online, an addiction to, to computer images. And so if you remember the movie, he, he struggled with this, and he's trying to do away with it. And then he takes that computer, and he takes it outside, and he begins beating it with a sledgehammer, or not a sledgehammer, a baseball bat, which makes for a very awkward exchange when his neighbor comes by and hears this guy out beating a computer with a baseball bat. You see, that's the image. This is what's holding you back. This is the old part of your life. Get rid of it. And so many of us have not taken to the extreme of exterminating, putting it away, getting rid of it completely. What have we done? We just hid in a corner. We just put it in a closet. We'll just leave it where it's at. And we won't mess with it. It's too inconvenient to try to deal with these things. And Paul is telling us, listen, if you want to be a new creation, if you want to be something new, you've got to get rid of the old. The old has to go. And so Paul is encouraging him to, to be out with the old, but to replace it with something new. There's a new lifestyle, something that symbolizes you as a Christian. And honestly, th this was a very early practice. They, they showed this, they symbolized this, they demonstrated this very early in the Christian walk in, in the first century. You see, we have this wonderful baptistry up here, and we come up here, and uh, we, we have baptisms every so often when somebody wants to be baptized, and we, we're used to seeing that. But I want to share with you, in the first century, it was just a little bit different. Because in the first century, what you did is you wore your clothes, kind of like what we let you do here. You wear your clothes into the baptistry. Right? They didn't have a baptistry. You went to the, the pond or the river or the creek or, honestly, the animal feeding trough, wherever you could find the water to do it at. Right? And then once you were baptized, the first thing you did was you went and took off your clothes. All right? Now, you didn't do it out where everybody could see it, because that may lead to verse 5. Right? But you took off your clothes, and the reason you did that was because somebody from the church had a new robe for you, brand new, white, without any stains, without any blemishes. And then you took your old clothes, and you threw them away, or sometimes they even burned them. Right? And you were wrapped with a new robe. You had a new outfit. You had a new garment to wear so that everybody knew this was a brand new lifestyle and this is a brand new way that you were going to live. The old was gone and now you had this new. And so in verse 10, he kind of switches. There's this all this negative stuff we need to get rid of and we need to put off and do, stop doing these things. In verse 10, he says, but or and have put on the new self. You see, there's something new that should mark us as Christians, that the moment we became Christians, these are the things that should be new for us. And so he kind of gives us details as we work through the rest of this passage. And here's what this new life should look like, right? And some of you, this is what should characterize us. And one of the things that should characterize us is progress, right? Now, I don't know if you see many cartoons, or I tend to look at political cartoons maybe a little more than I should, uh, but there's a whole lot this week about uh, the, the images of 2022 and 2023, right? Not necessarily just political, but this idea of 2023. And if you've ever seen these cartoons in newspaper, it always pictures the new year, whatever it is, as either a baby or a child, right? And usually they're a baby. They got the diaper on that says 2023. And then there's this old character, which is either Father Time or he's the old year, 
The expectation is that this is new, this is fresh, but it's going to grow into something different. It's not going to stay this baby that's pure and innocent and and, uh, wholesome. It's not going to stay that. It's going to progress into something else. It's going to change as time does. Progression is going to happen. And what you and I have to figure out is we have today this brand new year. Progression is going to happen. The question is not, is it going to happen? The question is, which direction are we going to progress in? And then verse 10, Paul tells us, here's the progression. Here's the direction that you need to go towards. In verse 10, he says, Having put on the new self, you are being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of your Creator, You see, this is the progression. There's this new life, and this new man begins, and he begins to grow. And you're a child, and when you're a child, let me make this clear, that when you're a child, you are born with all the essential body parts, right? The same body parts that I, as a full-grown adult male, have, okay? You're born with those, right? So you're not gaining stuff. When you are born, you have all the essentials, right? So let's make this clear. The same is true with your spiritual life and your salvation. When you became a Christian, you were born new, you were born fresh, and when you were born from that moment on, you have everything. Right? You're not gaining salvation, you're not building on salvation, there's not a point you have to reach for salvation. It is marked by that point. The difference is, are we going to stay at that point, or are we going to mature and grow into what we should be grow into a life that is bigger and more progressive or not more progressive but more productive you see we see this idea of progression that this little baby is going to grow and this little baby is going to take on an image and I, I don't know if you've ever done this but my wife loves to do this she will look at either a baby or baby pictures and she's like oh yeah that's the daddy oh yeah that's the mom and i'm going to be honest with you here's a little secret i've told lots of secrets out here no when i look at a baby they don't look like mom or dad at all to me, right? Because I'm going to be honest with you, if they did, poor little youngin, all right? Like, they just, they don't look like mom or dad at that point. Now, give them some time, give them some years, and they'll begin to take on those features, okay? And, and I'll just share with you, Malachi, I'm going to share a secret. Well, he's not here, he's back in the children's room. Malachi has a cowlick. I don't know if you know this or not, but guess where he got that cowlick from? Me, I got the same one. The only difference is my hair is short enough that most people don't notice it, okay? But that's not something we picked up on when we were in the hospital. It wasn't like, oh, wow, look at that cowlick, because he didn't have enough hair. But as he's grown and as he's matured, he's begun to take on more features. And so now if you look at pictures of him and you look at pictures of me when I was that age, we begin to look a whole lot more alike. And bless his heart, I'm sorry for that, that he's going to have to live with this for the rest of his life, right? But this is what Paul is telling us, that that just like that child, just like that baby, we have all the parts that we need, but there should be this progression. The progression should be that we're growing into the likeness of Christ. And we see that in verse 10, that we are literally becoming and taking on His image so that we look more and we act more like Christ in every sense of our life. And so what was lost in the fall, this image of God that we had can be changed and put back into our life. And so we begin to look more like our Creator we begin to behave more like our Creator. And day by day, God is deepening this image, deepening who we are in Him. You see, this is what happens spiritually. We're born, we have all our parts, we resemble Christ, but as we mature, we become more like Him and more like Him and more like Him. And it deepens this divine image that we have engraved on us. And He says it starts by you have this little knowledge. 
And you grow in this knowledge. And as you grow in this knowledge, you appreciate it. And the more you appreciate it, the more you want it. So think of it like food. This is what children do. What does a child do? They want food. And they, they'll gladly let you know they want food. Right? And so when you give them that food, what happens to that food? It becomes energy for their body to use to grow. And as they grow, what happens? They want more food. Okay, And then they reach those teenage years where that's all they want is just more food. Why? Because their body needs that energy. It's being converted to something they need. All right? And so as we as Christians continue to progress, what we need to do is continue taking His Word, let it become who we are so that it transforms and becomes the energy we need so that we grow more like Him each and every day. And as we do that, what are we going to want? More of what He's given us. More of His image. Right? And so this isn't just a personal habit. This transition is not just what happens to me on the inside, but it happens somewhere else. There's these new partnerships that begin to be established once we are transformed in Christ. Once we have put off the old self and we put on the new self. There's all these old barriers that are taken away. In verse 11, I want you to see this. He, he lists out these opposites. In verse 11, it says, In Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarians, Scythians, slave and free, but Christ is all and in all. You see, just like today, and I love this passage because it reminds us that sometimes the evil of sin and the hardships of sin, they really haven't changed all that much. We like to read in our world and we like to hear in our world how terrible things are today and how all of these barriers exist and how we're so divided today. But if you read this passage, you'll quickly realize that they were just as divided as we are, or probably worse than we were here in this first century. You see, they had these racial barriers between the Jews and the Gentiles. They had these religious barriers between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. They had these cultural barriers between the barbarians and the Santhians. And the barbarians were these uncultured, unruly people. And the Santhians, they were the worst. In fact, they were the worst of the worst. Right? You take a barbarian and you make them even less cultured, less civilized, and that's what you have. These people were gruesome in the way they treated their enemies, in the way they controlled, in the way they governed, in the way they, they uh, kind of harnessed their energy and power. They really were gruesome. If you read the things they did, you would understand why he puts them in there. This is the extreme. You want to take somebody who has zero value for human life of an enemy or zero value for human life at all, that's these folks. They don't care about a civilization as long as theirs is winning. Right? So they had these, these cultural barriers, and they also had these social barriers, and that's what he's talking about between the slave and the free. And Paul addresses all of these barriers, and then he reminds us that at the, at the essentials of it, that when we become Christians, all of those barriers become irrelevant because we are new and because we have this one commonality, that we are all equal in Christ. I read a story this past week, there's a beautiful story. In the midst of Christian persecution, when they found out you were a Christian, they would take you into the Colosseum in certain areas. They would take you into the Colosseum and they would put you to death, to give you a, to be as an example of, hey, don't be like this person. Don't become a Christian. And so in the year 20, or 202 AD, there was a record of a Christian um, who was arrested. And her, she was actually the slave of a very wealthy, very powerful Roman matriarch. Right? She had the power, but this lady was a slave. 
the difference between her going to the, the Colosseum was pretty, it was pretty evident. This is what was going to happen to her because she became a Christian. What the leaders of that town didn't expect was that when she walked into the Colosseum to face her death, she walked in that Colosseum with her owner, with her slave owner, her servant's owner. She was the servant. She walked in there with this person who was wealthy and was powerful. And the person who was wealthy and powerful looked at the ones who were getting ready to kill their slave and said, listen, if you're going to kill her for being a Christian, then I am just as guilty. And you will kill both of us or you will kill neither of us. And at that, they killed both of them as they stood there without a distinction between the one who was slave and the one who was free. They stood there and died without a distinction between the one who was wealthy and had everything and the one who had nothing. You see, we find this commonality in Christ that oversees every barrier that we put between us. These barriers come crashing down when we are these new creations, when we are these new men, and when we are these new people. There is no iron curtains, there's no prison bars, there's no color, there's no sex, there's no classifications, there's no natural and cultural difference. There is simply grace. And grace is the chasm that bridges all of those divides. And this is why Paul writes what he does at the end of the verse, that Christ is all and in all. You see, in the barriers that we put up, in the barriers that we see all around us, they do not exist in the world of Christianity. They do not exist because Christ is the common ground that brings us all to the same level. Christ is all and in all. He is all-sufficient Lord and Savior, all-sufficient King, and He indwells all. All of us. And because He indwells all of us, He erases the differences between us. He erases the race. He erases the religion. He erases the culture. He erases, erases those social, social levels and statuses that we think are so important. And all the things that society tells us we should be divided about, Christ says they don't matter. Why? Because Christ is all and in all. And when we see this, we begin to see these new partnerships instead of barriers. We begin to see our commonalities Instead of our differences. And then he goes on and he says, listen, you're going to see these partnerships. And these partnerships are going to change because of who you are on the inside. Your personality is going to change. And how you treat people is going to be different because you have put on this new self. And I want you to look with me in verse 12. He says, therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, in patience. And we are going to kind of pick this verse apart for just a moment, but I want you to notice these first three words, or not the first three words, how the description, right? Therefore, we're not going to pay attention to that one, but the words that come after that God's chosen ones, holy and loved. This is the description of you and I who are in Christ. This is the description of how Christ sees us. We are chosen. We are holy, which means we are set apart and we are loved. And I want you to understand, we are not these things because we deserve them. We are not these things because we achieve them. We are not these things because we showed up for church on New Year's Day when the rest of the world decided to sleep in. We're not these things because we showed up on Christmas morning. We're not these things because we read our Bible enough. We're not these things because we lived a good enough life. We are these things because of what what Christ did for us. We are these things because of his death on the cross. You see, that is what allows us to be chosen. That is what allows us to be holy. His death on the cross is what demonstrates how much he loves us. This is the depth 
of his love. And there's something very intimate that's going on here. There's something very personal that's going on here. And I want you to understand, there's this love relationship that God has with us. He didn't just choose you because you could further his plan. He didn't just choose you to make a pawn in his great scheme that he's working throughout the universe. He chose you and he made you holy and he did it because he loves you. And then he lists all of these things out and how we respond to that love. And i got to share with you that every one of these things that he lists out are so countercultural to that first century. And as we look through them, they're going to be so countercultural even to our generation, to our culture today. They were so countercultural back then that they didn't even have words to describe some of these things that he says that we should put on that should characterize us in their common language. They had to invent words for them. But he says the first thing that we should put on is heartfelt compassion. A different translation may say that you should put on tender mercy. But the, the literal Greek there says that, that you should have bowels of compassion. This deep compassion, so deep that it creates this physical response. You see, for us, we talk about the heart, and it's the center of emotion and all that. But for their, their Hebrew understanding, the Greek understanding, the bowels, the very core of who you are, this is where it all happens. All right? And so he's telling you that you should have such compassion that it makes a physical response for you. Right? That, that you should have such compassion that when you see someone who's hurting, that it causes you to physically hurt as well. And it's probably a terrible example, but one of the things that comes to mind is this idea of sympathy pains. If you've ever been a husband, or if you are a husband, and your wife is going into labor, you've seen it on shows and you've seen it on TV where the wife's in labor and all of a sudden this man, he starts feeling something in his stomach as well. He's feeling sympathy pains for his wife. And, and, and you can read what you want to in that. And you can say that Hollywood or whatever. But he has this physical hurt that is supposed to be sympathetic to her physical hurts as well. But it's a beautiful picture, whether it's true or not, whether Hollywood's done this terrible disservice. But it's true that we should be such compassionate people that we cannot just bypass someone who's hurting, that we should have such heartfelt compassion, such deep compassion, that when we see our friends and our neighbors and our, our fellow Christians hurting, we should feel their pain. We should feel their struggles. We should feel the agony they're going through. But not just the negative, it's also the positive. When we see a brother or sister in Christ who is at the time of their life and everything's going great and everything's positive, we should rejoice with them as well. We should be part of the joy that they're experiencing. And so we should have such this connection between us that we feel the emotions, we feel the effects of those that are around us. It doesn't mean that we let them control us. It just means that we're connected to them in such a way that we feel what they feel, whether it be good or bad. It goes on to say that you should put on our kindness. And it's very similar to compassion. One author put it this way. He says, compassion is for the person. Kindness is for what the person has. And he put it this way, that kindness is a virtue of a person whose neighbor's goods are as dear to him as his own. That's a kind person. right? So I'm not necessarily just concerned about the person. I'm concerned about the person's stuff. Right? So kindness would look at my neighbor, look across the street, and be like, wow, their dog's out. I've got two choices. Either I just let that dog run through the neighborhood, or I can be a kind, compassionate person, and I can treat that dog like it's my own dog. Right? And the same works with children. Right? You see a child who needs a hug, and parents turn around, you can give that child a hug. You see a child who needs to be nurtured and growing in faith, guess what? 
your child needs to be nurtured and growing in faith. And so you treat that child just like it's your own child. You treat that stuff just like it's your own. That is kindness. And he says, put on humility. And this is where it really becomes countercultural because, honestly, in classical Greek, there wasn't a word for humility. They despised humility. Pride was everything. Self-centeredness was everything. And you think we've got a selfie culture now? The only difference between now and then is they didn't have cell phones to make a selfie culture with. But it was all about who they were. It was all about making themselves the center of everything. He says, listen, stop that. Put other people ahead of yourself. And then he puts this last word, or this next word in there, which is gentleness. You may see it as meekness in a different translation. But he, he says that this word is willing to suffer injury rather than to inflict it on someone else. That's a hard reality. That you would rather suffer yourself then inflict suffering on someone else. And one author put it this way, if someone is going to get hurt in this deal, then let it be me. If someone's going to get offended here, then let it be me. If someone is going to suffer here, let it be me. And you can see the essence of humility is that you cannot or you should not, if someone's going to lose, it's going to be you. This is what meekness looks like. This is what gentleness looks like. And, and don't, don't let it... Uh, kind of be overshadowed. Don't think of it as weakness because that's very different. Meekness and gentleness, you have the ability to inflict the wounds. You have the ability to hurt someone else. You simply choose not to. See, weakness is you don't have the ability, but meekness and gentleness, you have the ability, but you choose not to. And one of the reasons you choose not to is this last word that he says we should put on is patience, long-suffering. You don't let your anger overtake you, and you don't let your anger overtake the situation. You control your response to the situation. Now, let's be honest. There's a lot of situations you cannot control, but what you can control is how you respond to that situation. And what he's telling you is when you put on patience, you control the response to a situation. And you read through that list, and you're like, man, that, that list is tough. That's a lot of hard, heavy stuff that you're telling me to put on. And then he kindly gives us this last thing. Because this last part is what holds it all together. There's this perfect bond that we're to put on that holds everything in place. Finally, in verse 14, he says, Above all, put on love, the perfect bond of unity. And he gives this image of, of either an outer coat or an outer garment. So you, you put on compassion, you put on patience, you put on humility, and then you wrap kind of this outer coat around it that is love. Right? Another image is that, that it's a belt. And so you've got all of these things that you put on, and then you have this belt that holds them all in place, that holds it all together. Right? Now, he's not going to use this image because they didn't have it then, but a good image for you, if you want one to kind of think through, is think about a police officer. Right? And a police officer has all of these things that he has to carry. He's got his gun, he's got his taser, he's got his handcuffs, he's got his nights. I don't guess they carry nightsticks anymore, but whatever else. They've got all these things that they have to carry. And what do they do? It's all right here. It's all on this belt that they have. And so what he's telling you, you have all this stuff. You have the, the gentleness, you have the humility, you have all this stuff. And what holds it all, what co holds it to you is this idea of love. This is the bond that holds everything together. And one author says that you'll never experience compassion for people unless you love them. You'll never experience kindness towards other people unless you love them. You'll never have the sense of humility and meekness unless you love other people. You'll never know how long you're willing to suffer or endure or to forgive 
unless you love other people. You know, all the stuff that we've just talked about, all those things that we listed that we should put on, if you don't have love, then you're not going to have any of that stuff together. It kind of fits back with the things that we put off and the things that we put on. It goes exactly back to the words of Christ. The greatest two commands are to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, to love other people. And so if you're looking for a list of resolutions, if you're looking to things that you want to do in this new year, then this is the list that you could start with. Start by putting off the old. And I'm not just saying you put them in a corner. I'm not just saying you slide them off the side. But you put them to death. You put them away. And you put on the new. You start by doing away with the things that Paul tells you to get rid of. And you start by putting on the things that will draw you closer to him, that will make you look like him. You make these resolutions to put on this white coat. And this white coat so that when other people see you, they know who you are. They know your status and they know who you belong to because of this transition, because of the actions they see in your life. You want a good start to the 2023? Then put off the old self and put on the new self. Let's pray together.